Good morning, church. I believe I had mentioned last week, uh, but a couple of weeks ago, I got to go to a, uh, a gospel coalition conference uh, up in Charlotte. It wasn't the, the full gospel coalition uh, conference. It was just a local chapter of, of churches in the Carolinas coming together uh, uh, speaking and, and preaching about the, the health of the church and how to, how to maintain and how to work toward a healthy church. But it was an extremely encouraging and refreshing time for me and for my soul, not just because I was with other pastors and other guys that are kind of in the trenches doing the same work, but for me there's a, a, a joy that comes with continued uh, learning and growth uh, as much as I fought against reading and, and studying, you know, when I was younger in middle school and high school, I'm at the eight, eight age of my life now where there's, there's just joy and excitement in learning and studying and just digging deeper into that material. Uh, and even as I came home from the Gospel Coalition Conference, I, I've got an, another small stack of books that I've added to my already outrageous Read, like to read list, uh, the books that I have set aside for, for me to work through, I'm pretty sure I'm never actually going to read through the rest of that reading list, but I've got a lot of books to work on, and I'm excited about that. I love it. Um, and most other careers, especially careers that require a formal education or a degree, they re- actually require continuing education, you know, uh, Careers like uh, the medical field, doctors, counselors, teachers, lawyers, uh, uh, people in finance like accountants and, and uh, business, business executives and computer techs require continuing education because the world is constantly growing and changing. Uh, and, and so the people in these positions need to also be growing and learning so they can adapt to the world that is changing around them. It helps these people and these careers to adapt to the the current trends and changes. But the really interesting thing is that ministry doesn't require continuing education. And so for me, the value of continuing my own education is something that cannot actually be measured. There's a deep value because Culture itself is constantly changing and moving forward. And if I'm not continuing my own education, then I'm limiting myself in my own ministry and my work towards the kingdom. Uh, it, it keeps me, me sharp and, and challenges me. My father-in-law actually gave me the advice once that uh, every now and then you should, just, you should read a book that makes your blood boil. Even if you absolutely disagree with everything that the author is saying, you should read a book like that every now and then because it forces you to re-examine, well, why do I believe what I believe? And what what is this author saying? And how does that compare with what Scripture actually says? For me, continuing education helps me to better communicate the gospel. There's that need to always be learning and growing. 
Not just in theology and doctrine, but regarding relationships and how to interact with people. Uh, regarding cultural awareness and the, the, the trends that go on in the world around us. Uh, learning how to establish emotional health and healthy boundaries. These are all things that I know more now than I did a year ago, which was more than I knew five years ago. It, it's a process of always learning and growing. Not just growing as a minister of the gospel, but growing as a person, growing as a husband, growing as a father. I always want to be willing and pursuing growth and learning. And then we come to this passage in Hebrews this morning. And the author is clearly frustrated with the recipients of this letter because they are not growing. In fact, he says they ought to be further along than where they are. In fact, I would suggest that the author is making the argument that applies not just to the church then, but to the church today, that every Christian should be growing in their spiritual development. It's not just something necessary for, for pastors or for elders and deacons or for people on a church staff, but every Christian should be growing in their spiritual development. It's not just something that you pray a special magic prayer one time and then you're done for the rest of your life. The Christian faith is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. It does that, but that is not the core and the purpose of what the Christian faith is. It is a process of growth. Or if you want the church word for that, it's sanctification. The process of growing in faith and understanding. And the author unpacks three things in this passage that we looked at this morning. Three things that the believers should be. First, in, uh, in chapter 5, verses 11-14, through 14, that Christians should be sharing be sharing, willing to share their faith. Be sharing in 5, 11 through 14. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, that Christians should be wary. He's offering them a warning or issuing them a warning. Be wary in chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. And then in verses 13 through 20, that Christians should and can be certain. That the faith, we have a faith that we can be certain of. And that's in verses 13 through 20. And before I go any further, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank You for Your Word. God, the Word that You gave to Your church generations ago is living and active and speaks to us today. That it is always relevant. It always uh, has the power to transform hearts and renew our hearts and transform our minds. God, I pray that You would speak to us this morning. Pour out Your Spirit in this place and use me in spite of myself to communicate Your Gospel truth. Be with us in this time and transform our hearts by the power of Your Word. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. 
All right, for a quick recap, and I know I do this every week, but I'm going to continue doing it every week because it's good to remember where we are in the the letter to the Hebrews. But Hebrews was written by an anonymous author to a group of Hebrew Christians, that these were Jewish people who converted from the Jewish faith to a Christian faith, hence the letter to the Hebrews. And he's writing about how God has revealed himself in the past, and as the theologian Donald Guthrie has said, that the past has given way to better things. The past was good, but now the Son, being Jesus, is better. Because Jesus is able to do what the prophets and angels and Moses and priests could never do. That Christ alone is able to atone for sin and to take an enemy of God and make him into a child of God. And last week, we were looking at how Christ is greater than the high priest. And at the end of that, the author of the, the letter references how Jesus is in the order, the priestly order of Melchizedek. And then the author gets off on this side tangent of frustration because the audience, the recipients of this letter, has a lack of understanding. And so after you experience the gospel, the author is saying that one of the things that you need to do is you need to be sharing. Looking at verse 11 in chapter 5, he says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Now, the, the this that they have much to say about is about how Jesus is in the priestly order of Melchizedek. About that, they have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That's a very nice churchy way of saying, y'all gave up. You just stopped. That whoever is receiving this letter, they just stopped learning. They stopped growing. They just wanted to stay on a surface level understanding of faith and doctrine. And in verse 12 he says, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. That's kind of harsh to hear. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He's saying at this point in their, in their, their life, in their spiritual growth, that they should actually be at a point where they are teaching other people. Now, there is an understanding that not everyone is a teacher. Not everyone is called to teach. Some people enjoy it. Some people have a knack for it. Some people are terrified of the thought of getting up in front of people and trying to explain something. Not everyone is meant to be a teacher as in that profession, but everyone, at least with their understanding of the gospel, should be able to communicate and teach what they know. Because at some level, teaching is a natural aspect of life. It's a natural aspect of communication, of sharing what you know with someone else. 
I even see it in my own children. With Isaac being the oldest, he knows how to read and, and he's doing math problems. Yeah, I'm talking about you. And, and, he, and he's able to do these things. And so as Mary Catherine and Jeremiah are, are, Mary Catherine is learning to read. Jeremiah is recognizing letters and practicing writing. Isaac, I, I love watching him help them try to understand these things that they're learning. I see all three of them together trying to teach Zachy the alphabet song, and he doesn't, he can't articulate the letters, but he kind of like mumbles along to the melody of the song, but they're helping teach him because teaching is a natural element that when you know something, you are able to communicate it to other people. And so the author is saying, at some level, you should be teaching others what you know. You should be sharing what you have, but you guys are craving milk instead of solid food. You're not there yet. Like an infant in your spiritual life, you are craving milk because you are not able to handle solid food. He's saying they're spiritual babies. In Matthew 28, after Jesus has been resurrected, he gives the great commission for his disciples to go and make more disciples by going and teaching and baptizing. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells the recipients of that letter that in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. If anyone that asks why you believe what you believe, you should be able to tell them what you believe and why. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The author is saying, not just to the church then, but to all believers, you should be sharing what you know about the gospel. But instead of growing and working toward a deeper knowledge, the recipients of this letter have shown that spiritually they are unskilled. And he says, you are like a child. But solid food is for the mature. And it's, it comes by a training with constant practice. And this leads to a very uncomfortable question, but are you sharing your faith. Christian, today, here in this church, are you sharing your faith with the people around you in your life? Are you focusing on staying at a surface level understanding, craving milk instead of solid food? Or as the author says, unskilled in the word of righteousness? Are you seeking out solid spiritual food and constantly making a practice of sharing what you believe? And you might even be saying, well, I'm not a teacher. Like, I, I, I'm not good at that. I, I don't know enough to share it with other people. Going back to 1 Peter, this time in chapter 1, verse 9, Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God, he's saying that God has called you out of darkness and into his light so that you can share that same good news with everyone around you. You don't need to come up here and preach. You, you, you don't necessarily need to get into the, the Greek and Hebrew to understand the, the, the Scriptures in the way that they were originally written. You don't need to be able to discuss uh, the, 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 the council coming together discussing the homoousius nature of the Father and the Son during the Nicene Creed. You don't need to be able to unpack all of those things. You are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. Sharing your testimony, your story. And just like in a court of law, a person giving their testimony is not required to know every aspect of knowledge required to whatever they are talking about. They're called to give what they have witnessed, what they have experienced. You don't need to be able to articulate John Calvin's view on X, Y, and Z in the book of Romans. What you need to do is to be able to communicate what God has done for you and how God has worked in your life. That's what you're called to do. You're called to share that. And you might even say, well, it, it, it's awkward. It's, I just feel uncomfortable doing that or I just I don't know how to do that. And in verse 14, where he says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It, it's, a, it's a matter of, of practice. It, it's a matter of habit that the more you do it, the easier it gets, the more inclined you are to do it again. It's just like any other skill or ability that when you first begin, it's awkward and sometimes might be even painful. But the more you do it, the, the more you become accustomed to it. Like playing a guitar the first time, like just kind of cuts into your fingers, but you build up those calluses and the finger muscles and, and you learn and you adapt to being able to do it, the more you do it. And in a similar way, the more you share your own testimony and experience of the gospel, you develop that habit. And you are being trained by constant practice towards spiritual solid food. And as the author is chastising the Hebrews about their lack of growing and sharing their faith, he issues a warning in his second point. Be wary. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He's saying, all right, you guys have got an elementary understanding. Like little children, you have a small understanding of your faith. Let's leave that and work toward maturity. 
Because the things that he unpacks here, they were actually familiar with these concepts. These are not foreign in the Jewish faith and understanding. It's intensified through a Christian understanding and it's personified in Christ. But he's saying, you guys already understand this, but you stopped there. Leave that behind. You've got that. Keep going. Go on toward maturity. And he said, we want to help you with that if God permits. But then he gets to an extremely difficult passage next, starting in verse 4. For it is impossible, and the case who of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. He presents this hypothetical argument that seems to assault our Christian senses and sensibility. And we look at it on, on this side of, of the cross and where we stand in Christian history and say, but what about grace? What about forgiveness? But the difficult aspect is that he's making a hypothetical argument. If you do this, it is if you have tasted the glories and the wonders and the Spirit of God and then walk away and abandon it, it is impossible to be restored to that faith again. Unfortunately, it is not uncommon to hear stories of people who have been raised in the church and they, they can sing the songs, they know all the right words to say, but they walk away never to return to repentance or to faith. And it's painful to see that. It hurts to see that. And honestly, as a father, I am, I'm, I'm terrified of that for my own children. We, we pray for our children every single night that they, would receive and, uh, that they would receive the gospel for themselves, but that they would love the Lord on their own accord, not based off of the faith of mom and dad. Jesus himself gives the parable of the sower and it's recorded in three of the four Gospels, in Matthew 13 and Mark 4 and Luke 8. And in Matthew 13, Jesus says this, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. 
Jesus himself is saying that it is entirely possible for someone to receive the gospel, the good news of of repentance, of death and new life, and to even have the appearance of that new life themselves, but the shallow soil of their heart are the thorns of sin and distraction can destroy that growth. It is not our place to understand someone else's heart. And so the author is saying, watch out, be wary. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary on uh, the epistle to the Hebrews, wrote this. He says, Scriptures contain encouragement enough and to spare for the feeblest believer. So for those that are struggling the most, there are constant encouragements within Scripture. But they're full of solemn warnings to those who think they stand to beware lest they fall. You and I have a tendency to to think that we are better off than we actually are. To think that we've, we've got this down, we've got this covered, we know the right things to say. And the author is saying, be careful. Watch yourself. Do not let your heart become hardened and calloused toward the good news of the gospel. We don't know the hearts of others and what the, le- the Lord's plan is for each and every person. But we do have a warning to watch our own hearts and to urge one another on toward holiness. That's a repeated theme throughout this letter is the, the, the family and church aspect of the body of believers to, to call one another toward repentance and holiness. The good news in this case is that the author is not saying, about, saying this about this body of believers. In, nine through, in verses 9 through 12, He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. He's saying that the faith that they have seen, the the works that they are doing is evidence of God working in their lives. The things that they are doing is showing that even though they're at a surface level, God is at least working there. It might be slow. It might be taking a while, but something's happening. Last year, we looked at the book of James And he said over and over again that faith without works is dead. And that's what the author is getting at here, that if they did not have anything to show, if they were not doing any works at all, then they might be in danger of the warning that he just gave. But he's saying, I at least see you guys doing work, and I see you loving and and at least trying to do something. And so that's evidence that God is working They might be spiritual children. They might not be actively growing. But at least they're doing some work and sharing some love. 
And so, believer, you and I are called to examine our own heart. Examine your heart. Have you become calloused to the Word of God? When you hear about the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection, does that spark joy and excitement in your life? Or or do you just say, well, I've heard that. I hear that every week. Has your heart become calloused to the gospel? Or are you looking for ways to grow, and not just grow, but to share your faith, to share your hope with others around you? And so watch your heart. Be wary, not to scare you, but as he said in verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So how do you imitate those with faith and patience? He gets to that in his third point, to be certain. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. We're all familiar with the phrase that when someone really wants to say, all right, I'm, I'm telling you the truth here, and they'll, uh, they'll say something along the lines of, by God as my witness. They're saying, may God strike me dead if what I'm saying is not true. And God has no one to swear to because there is no one higher than himself. And so God says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bless you. I am going to multiply you. And so the author says, look at Abraham and the faith and the patience that he had. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God swore by himself. He had no one else to swear by, and so God says, I will bless you, I will multiply you, and it's his nature, it is impossible for God to lie He cannot say, well, I'm going to do this and then change his mind. And so when he promised Abraham that Abraham would have a son, which by the way, Abraham was 75 years old when God gave him that promise. It didn't happen the next day. It didn't happen the next year. But 25 years later, that promise came true. And the author is saying, look at Abraham and imitate that kind of faith. Imitate that kind of patience. Not because you're waiting for your own son to arrive, but you have certainty because the Son of God has already come. Picking up in verse 19, that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That Christ is called our sure and steady anchor because of the character and the nature of God His faithfulness and His promise and the fact that He cannot lie. Because all the way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God at that point promised that the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. Generations later, God Himself made a covenant promise with Abraham that God instituted this covenant. It's not something that Abraham contributed toward, but God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a son, and your offspring will bless the nations. This is the same God who used Moses to deliver His people from slavery and later promised that the true and eternal King would come from the line of David. And these promises are met and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The suffering servant that Isaiah looked forward to. The rock and the refuge that David would sing of. The Son of God. The Word made flesh. And He came and He took your sin upon Himself, upon His sinless life. And He nailed that sin to the cross. And He died. He was buried. And He rose again. And He turned away God's wrath. And showing mercy and grace, He has declared you righteous and that you are a holy child of the living, eternal God. This Jesus is your sure and steadfast anchor. Because you don't need to teach others and share your testimony to earn God's favor. You don't need to be wary out of fear of not being good enough. He's your sure and steadfast anchor because the Son of God Himself went on your behalf to deliver you from slavery to sin to freedom as a child of God. This here, this is your continuing education. This is how you and I grow in our understanding and our knowledge of who God is and who the Son is and what that means to us as believers today. Read it. Study it. Know it. I'm not saying you have to get into original languages and start reading the the ancient church fathers. You don't need to do that. You just need to spend time in the Word. Know how God has communicated. Not trying to earn your salvation, hoping that if you, the more you read your Bible, maybe God will just love you that much more. But read it to better know this God who loved you so much to send His own Son to restore you to Himself. So I encourage you to learn, grow, and share what you know. And you can rest 
knowing Christ, the Son of God Himself, is your anchor that secures you to the eternal living God. And so I have to challenge you this morning. As you examine your own heart, have you become dull of hearing like the Hebrews? Have you settled for spiritual milk, refusing to share what you have learned? Has your heart hardened to the Word of God, allowing the thorns of life to choke out your faith? Do you long for an anchor in the storms of life, longing for rest in a sea of uncertainty? Or will you grow by sharing your testimony of what you have experienced, making a habit of sharing the solid food of spiritual faith? Will you watch your heart against a a lazy faith urging one another on toward holiness? And will you find certainty in Jesus Christ, trusting in Him alone for salvation as your anchor that secures your very faith? Christian, I ask you, will you choose to grow? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank You for your faithfulness to us. And God, we confess that far too often we have become lazy in our faith. That out of fear of, of awkwardness or out of just pure laziness that we have not shared our faith with those around us. That more often than not, uh, we allow the good news of the gospel to just be something that we read and gloss over instead of experiencing the pure joy of what You went through to restore us to Yourself. And so God, I pray that we would find our hope and our, our rest and our certainty in Christ alone. That we have nothing to offer but because He died and rose again that we can be sure of Your promise to us today. God, we thank You. We love You. And we pray all of this in the majestic, holy, precious name of Jesus. Amen.